0: let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious riches of your word. Thank you that you continue to speak to us by it even today. Thank you that you change us by it and bring us together around the Lord Jesus through what you're doing in it. We pray that you would keep doing this this morning. Uh, Lord, help me as I speak to speak clearly and faithfully to your truth and help all of us to respond with lives pointed to Jesus. We pray in his name. I'm in. Well, I still remember six years ago, a cold winter night, the day before my engineering project was due. I was there with my team, it was four of us. Earlier in the day, we'd made a lot of great progress. We were a bit behind earlier in the semester, but those last three weeks, they'd been golden. We were nearly there. And then in the lab, amidst the aroma of unshowered engineering students, a new aroma arised, the smell of smoke of our whole circuit boards breaking. That was bad, but it was okay. We had a backup, we had an old revision, we were good to go. We'd spend the whole night fixing it and sorting it out for the demonstration the next day. So the lab closed at 11pm, we went over to someone else's house, they had no heating, it was a basement, it was really cold, we started getting exhausted, Our hands were shaking, we were trying our best, but the smell happened again. It had gone up in flames this time. And we all knew coming into the next morning that we were coming to our markers with nothing more than a colorful brick to show for six months of work, and that we'd have to do it all again next year. There are so many things in life that you get to the end of them and you go, what was the point? It's meaningless. All this effort, all this pursuit of excellence, thinking that you would have it this time, that you would succeed, that you would be remembered all for nothing. This is a small example of this, but there's many things I'm sure all of us could think of when this has happened for us. And as we continue in Ecclesiastes this morning, we're continuing to see his theme, the, the preacher in the book's theme of everything under the sun being meaningless. Last week, we saw it in that there's nothing new. And even the pursuit of wisdom itself ultimately is vanity. And this week, there's three new ideas that he's going into. Um, The first being that um, there is no thing that uh, pleasures can give you that will ultimately satisfy. That there's no um, wisdom in life that you live out that will satisfy and that there's no work that will truly give meaning and purpose. It's a pretty depressing look. I was talking with a friend at college this week that I was preaching on it, and they said, "Uh, good luck. (laughs) But there's hope at the end. Uh, The last three verses of the chapter give a glimmer of what it looks like to live under God rather than under our own desires. And we'll see how that points us to the even greater hope that we have in Jesus. So let's get into the first few verses. Now, the first sections in verse 1 to 11, and they begin the preacher's exploration into pleasures, attempting to find meaning into following your own desires. The first two verses summarize it really well. I said in my heart, "Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad." And of pleasure, what use is it? He could just stop right here. His point's really clear. The pursuit of wisdom, like before, in this case the pursuit of pleasure, is vanity. It's useless. There's no gain. But he wants to make it really clear. And so we get verse after verse of his attempt at giving it the best go he can it reminds me a bit of when people go through a midlife crisis or increasingly a quarter life crisis, this is popular with millennials, and you hear the guys going after motorbikes and gardening and fishing or keeping fish, whatever. This guy is like that except to the extreme. You've got verse three, it's wine. In verse four, it's great works and houses and vineyards. Verse 5, it's gardens and parks and fruit trees. In verse 6, it's pools of water for his forest. In verse 7, its slaves and a great number of animals. In verse 8, it's silver and gold and great treasure and singers and concubines. This guy is in this high position of king, and he can get whatever he wants. Unlike us, when we just try to go chase these desires and sometimes get them. He's been able to do it all. He's got it all. What does he say about it? In verses 9 and 10, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He sought pleasure and found it. If there's any man who succeeded in getting all he wanted, it was this guy. But what's the result? We'll get to it in a minute. But before we get there, I think it's really tempting for us to look at this guy and go, isn't this some really selfish, really messy guy that's not at all who we'd be like? But I think it's more common in us today to have this sort of attitude than we think. On a society level, David Williams, who's the director of training at the Church Mission Society, he reckons that in places like Australia in the West, we're moving towards a worldview that is a um, pain-pleasure worldview. For many of us, especially if you're older, uh, we've been raised in an environment that is more of a guilt-innocence culture. So people tell me it's a bit like having an internal lawyer, So when you're thinking about situations, you go, oh, no, if I do that, someone will catch me. I'll be wrong. I'll be found out. You do the good thing so that you stay innocent. That's been pervading Aussie culture for years, but in recent times, it's moving towards something a bit different. David says, in a pain-pleasure worldview, you make decisions based on what feels good to you and what makes you happy. Your identity is a pleasure seeker, and a pain avoider, and I think that's really true. I saw that at university campuses, I've seen that in my generation and people younger than me. Life is all about pleasure and avoiding anything that's painful or uncomfortable. We're a really rich nation, and there's thousands of shows on Netflix, and yet, no, that's not enough. We get Disney Plus, we get Stan, we get Binge, we get Prime Video, we get Paramount Plus, the list goes on. Listening to that one favourite album, that's not enough. We need access to basically every bit of music ever made at the touch of a button on Spotify or Apple Music. Social media is not content with just letting you scroll through all of your friends' updates, you can scroll forever. It, you, it doesn't stop there's always something it finds that's relevant to you and your interests. Everything can be delivered. So many of us started delivering groceries during the pandemic and didn't really stop. (laughs) It's really convenient. (laughs) Everything that measures our lives as being all about pleasure, minimizing pain is what we seek so much today. And so I think we really need to keep hearing words like the preacher's words in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's saying that from a human perspective, there's nothing to be gained from pleasure, nothing that has lasting value. There's no true meaning in seeking after pleasure. It just doesn't last. It's like when you first get into coffee and it's amazing at the start and it gets you by that first day, but fast forward two years and suddenly coffee is just getting you to where you used to be before you started on coffee. It doesn't last the way that we pursue these things. Just like a breath, any pleasures are soon gone and finding meaning in pursuing them is vanity. This is the first of the preacher's points. The next two are a bit shorter. In verse 12 and 17, he moves on to wise living. And that sounds a bit similar to to chapter 1. Chapter 1, I think, was about acquiring wisdom. In chapter 2, the preacher's moving on to the idea of living wisely. So let me read from verse 13. Then I saw there is much gain in wisdom... Much more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Sounds like a better start this time. He's going, actually, it is better to live wisely. Just as far different as the light is from the darkness, it is to live wisely. He describes people that are living wisely like people that can see and move forward compared to people stumbling in the dark. That's why Proverbs is still in the Bible. There are good things about living in wisdom that God gives us. But then you read the rest of verse 14. And yet I perceive that that, that the same event happens to all of them. And in what follows in verse 15 and 17 is the fact that death awaits everyone. We all die no matter how wise you are. Even the best person, the wisest person, the person you look up to, the most selfless person, they die. None of the people we respect escape death. There's no preacher or teacher that isn't facing death. Everyone faces it. From a human perspective, he's saying there's no real point in wise living if the same thing is going to happen to the foolish guy anyway. But there's a particular emphasis here on something even deeper. The fact that when we die, no matter how wise we are, we're soon forgotten. Verse 16 says, For all of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. I've heard people say that you die twice when you first stop breathing, and then later when someone speaks your name for the last time. I think that's a bit of what's going on here. If you've done any digging into ancestry, you've noticed this. My mum's really into it. She's gone back a few hundred years. But eventually you start having issues. Eventually names start to get blurry. The relationships start to go missing. Suddenly there's just nothing. Suddenly thousands of years of where you've come from is just gone. No one remembers. It's missing. No one acknowledges, even from your family, who's come before you. I've heard people who live by a tombstone philosophy where they go, I wanna live in a way that will be remembered well, the sort of way that I'd be proud of to be written on my tombstone. But even tombstones crack and decay. If you're living for how you'll be remembered, the sad reality is that the teacher's saying, the preacher's saying that it just won't last. Finding meaning in wise living is vanity. Then the third part uh, is a bit shorter even than this one, and it's on toil, our work and labours. And I think this is pretty close to home for most of us. A lot of us are spending 40 hours plus at work, probably more than that at home, wasting away at family and doing all sorts of things. And he's not at all optimistic about what your labours produce. In verses 18 and 23, it feels like there's no hope left. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Finding meaning in toil of our labors and our work, again, it's vanity. And this time it's a different consequence of death. It's the consequence that no matter how hard you worked, no matter how wise you lived, the stuff that you've got is all gone. You can't take any of it with you. And worse than that, people who didn't live well, people who slacked off, they'll get it all. They'll benefit from you. You see this in wills, where just because someone is a family member, they can get a, a look into a will even though they abandoned their father or mum, they didn't care for them. And yet, other people who stayed with them the whole time, they, surely they deserve that, right? When we die, it's all gone. We all know the parable Jesus told of the rich fool who got so much grain that it filled up his barn and he went, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll build even more barns to fit even more grain in and then I can be secure and enjoy my life. And then God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Death takes everything we have and leaves it to whoever comes after us. It's pretty sobering. And so the preacher ends this section with great sadness. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the nights his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Trying to find meaning in our work, in our toil, from a human perspective, it's meaningless. We won't get anything. So far, it's a really bleak picture. In all these three things, in pleasures, in living wisely, and in work, it feels like we're left out of options. None of them actually give any meaning that lasts. And that's why it's lovely that at the end of this chapter, we get our first glimpse of something more, of something more joyful and actually getting a glimpse of God's. Verse 24, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Rather than trying to find meaning and purpose from our pleasures in our work, the preacher comes to realize a different perspective. He comes to see that all these things, these things he's been slaving over, that he's been anxious over, that he's been trying to see something in, they're actually gifts from God. They're meant for our joy and our pleasure. They're meant to be good. Rather than being oppressive, rather than being futile, they're meant to be good for us. Um, Derek Kidner, who's a commentator on this book and other books of wisdom literature, He says that, rightly used, the basic things of life are sweet and good. What spoils them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. It's when we try to find meaning and purpose in the things that we are given, that they're just not designed to give, that it all goes wrong. Now, it's easy to get this part wrong in two ways. Um, Josh shared last week that our culture very much has the YOLO category, which I've heard Angela likes to use, Um, and that says that we enjoy life now because it's all we have. Some take these verses to say that this is what the Christian life is about. Uh, All this stuff is meaningless, and so do what you want. Eat whatever you want. Drink whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Don't worry. Life is good that's missing the point. The other way people get it wrong is they go, this is all meant to be sarcastic. That um, in reading this, it's pointing us to say that there's something missing and that actually there's no meaning in this and that's only what people who aren't regarding God should do. Um, If you wanna hear more about that, you can talk to me later. But I think that's also really wrong. It's somewhere in the middle These verses are showing us a different perspective. Finally, this preacher is seeing things from the vantage point of God rather than man. From a human-centered perspective, the -the under-the-sun perspective that we've had so much, everything truly is meaningless. But here we're seeing from God's vantage point that the everyday pleasures of work, they're a gift, they're life from him. There's something to be thankful for. We only have them because he gave them to us. Verse 26 shows that God has a concern for his people. They're living for him now. Actually, he gives them joy. He gives them knowledge. He gives them these things compared to the ones that are trapped outside of knowledge from him in this endless cycle of monotony with no purpose. Rather than being excused to live however we want, The preacher's calling us to lift our gaze to God, to acknowledge him in life, to see the good gifts he has given us, the everyday things, even the mundane things, that are to give us pleasure and live to please him, not ourselves. But if you're like me, it does still feel a bit empty by the end. We've had this whole chapter and even last chapter that's been this search for meaning, and this answer still isn't there. It's still not actually giving us meaning in life. We're getting joy, we're getting things, but we've just heard that all of these joys are still temporary. What about what's to come? If this was the end, then it'd be a pretty disappointing book. (laughs) But thankfully God's scriptures don't end that way. And Christians get to see how the biggest problems in this passage, are totally dealt with and reversed and made amazing in the Lord Jesus. Christians have a greater hope than monotony or simply enjoying pleasures now. It's a hope that transforms everything because in Jesus, we will live. We'll live, even though we die, we'll live forever with him. 1 Corinthians 15, if you're thinking resurrection, that should be your go to chapter. And I'll go through a bit of that. And like Ecclesiastes, it's actually got a theme of vanity going on. At the start of the chapter, um, Paul is addressing people who are not believing that people are going to be raised from the dead. And he's going, well, if people aren't raised from the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then all of our faith and hope is in vain. And we, of all people, are most to be pitied out of anyone. You see, without the resurrection, even if we had everything else of Christianity, we'd be in the same Ecclesiastes situation. No lasting purpose or meaning or accomplishment. We'd be in vanity still. But Jesus has raised from the dead. Without it, we'd be living in vain. But because of it, we have been offered life because he has defeated death. We're offered forgiveness because he's defeated sin and taken our sin on himself. In verses 12 and 14, um, we're already talking about if, if those ones where it's if he's not proclaimed as being risen from the dead, all that stuff. But then in verse 32 we end up with one that's a bit similar to what we've had before. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's a saying from the time, and it does sound a bit similar to Ecclesiastes, but rather than that, rather than just doing whatever we like with no sense of meaning or purpose, we look forward to the eternal joy in the new creation of being freed from death and evil. The richest pleasures of the world right now pale in comparison to what's to come. In Jesus, we have life forever. Death does not hold us down anymore. And notice, too, that in the eternal life we have, it's not leaving us in the state of forgottenness and despair of Ecclesiastes so many people in the world will forget us in our lives now but faithful christians are remembered by the most important person in the world the lord of the whole universe remembered before the father remembered when they're raised on the last day remembered when they are then called to spend eternity with him and his people there's no more emptiness of our life leading nowhere. Our life as Christians has a trajectory of eternity with Jesus. In Jesus, though we die, we have life forever. And there's an implication for that that Paul picks up on at the end of the chapter that's really relevant to our passage in Ecclesiastes 2. In verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, our faith is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, all that we do in living for the Lord Jesus is not in vain. There's a whole bunch of dimensions to this. In Colossians 3, there's the passage about the bondservants, where they're called to live with Jesus as their master, knowing that they have a reward waiting for them in heaven. The work that they do is serving the Lord Jesus. It's not in vain. It's living faithfully to please him. So even in the lowest of the sort of work we can do, there is eternal purpose and meaning in it by our faithful obedience to Jesus. No longer does it lead nowhere, but in being obedient servants of Jesus, we can actually have purpose in our work. But it's not just the work we're doing, it's all of our lives, isn't it? Every day when we choose to read the scriptures rather than picking up our phone and scrolling, every day that we choose to say what's true rather than what will make life easy, we are living and laboring for Jesus. Every time we are getting past our nervousness and apprehension to speak the truth of the gospel to someone because we are convinced that there is no other news they need more to hear, that is living faithfully for Jesus. That is building up treasure in a place that doesn't spoil or perish or fade, but kept in heaven safe for us. It's this attitude that changes the way that we approach those verses on eating and drinking and enjoying life. Of course, we are to continue enjoying what God has given us, but it's not the purpose of our lives now. If the purpose was in those, we'd be leading nowhere. Because of this new life and being called to be Jesus, people loving and serving him, we now have priorities in our lives. We choose to even deny some of the pleasures that we might have access to or that we think we might deserve because it means more faithfully serving and loving our Lord Jesus. It means doing things that have eternal consequence and value. This affects the way we think about our work choices, the way we raise our kids, how we use our spare time. All these things that we might place value in seeking pleasure or work or whatever, we have the choice to make. Will we be faithful to Jesus in this? And will that mean that we are living with purpose, pursuing the meaning that comes from being his people? As we finish up, I think God's calling us in this passage to rightly see this life and the next for what it is. Are you living, finding meaning in every pleasure and desire? Know that you won't find it, no matter how hard you try. Are you seeking meaning through wise living? Know that even the wisest people still die and are forgotten. Are you pursuing meaning in work and accomplishment? Know that no accomplishment really stands in this life. We need to see the world from God's perspective We need to enjoy the good gifts he gives us now, but remember the grander picture he's called us towards. The new life he's given us that starts now, that looks like labouring for him in his kingdom, seeking to please and honour him in all that we do, knowing the great joy we enjoy now, but the even more insurmountable joy of what's to come. Let's pray for his help in making this call every day. Heavenly Father, forgive us of how we often so much try to find meaning in the things that don't last, in the desires of our hearts that are often so caught up in sin, in the seeking wisdom and status that's soon forgotten, in seeking to work and find achievements that other people ultimately benefit from. Lord, help us to see these things as good gifts you've given us, but help us to see and take hold of the life you offer us in Jesus. Lord, change our hearts and minds to want to live knowing that he is Lord and knowing that whatever work we labour for him is not in vain. Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen.